Let's start with the big news. I see Lincoln's Underpants, that same book that I have been talking about for well over a year, is officially released today, Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Though I know some of you have found it through other means, and I salute you. The book is available at the usual places online. And if you get a copy, I would love that. If you can leave a review where you buy it, that would help too. If you can request it from your library or local bookstore, that would be incredible. It's a big deal for me. But the best way to get it out in the world is to have the help of listeners who want to and are willing to help spread the word. No pressure, but if you feel like helping, then you do you. If you do get a copy, I hope you enjoy. You can find more at thepastandthecurious.com. And Kickstarters, those books are in the mail. I promise. Hello, everyone. It's Mick Sullivan, and I want to welcome you to The Past and the Curious. Well, here we are. This is the last installment of the Underwear Chronicles, and it's time to coincide with the release of the book. Haha. There are two more chapters and a whole bunch of other things that can be found in the book, I See Lincoln's Underpants, but today we're doing something not totally common for the show. I actually thought about not releasing this story, but ultimately decided to. It is about Al Capone, and he was a bad guy. He was a criminal who did bad things and he hurt people. Don't be like him and don't think that he's cool. I don't want you to misunderstand. But sometimes we need to learn about bad people in order to better understand the good. And also, he was ultimately brought down with the help of a guy who sold him his underwear, so that really tracks. There's a little bit of implied violence and talk about prohibition in here, so if that gives you pause, give it consideration. But as usual, it is given the typical, the past and the curious treatment so that we can all learn a lot and also laugh at this guy who was a very, very bad dude. Things could have turned out differently for Alphonse Capone. Like many others in the 1800s, his parents left their homeland and crossed the ocean with a couple of kids and whatever they could fit into a trunk. They stepped onto Ellis Island in 1894 with wobbly sea legs, a handful of keepsakes, a few diapers for the boys, and a handful of clothes and underwear for themselves. Settling within eyesight of the Statue of Liberty, they quickly filled up their house with more children. Al was the fourth of nine, and because of the family's tight budget, he'd wear the hand-me-downs as soon as they got too tight for his three older brothers. There's no way to know how many of the Capone kids wore the same underwear, but for a big family in turn-of-the-century Brooklyn, underwear sharing was a way of life. Despite having to feed a family the size of a baseball team, the Capones worked hard and carved out a decent life alongside the other immigrants in the neighborhood. Young Al was a smart kid and usually brought home good report cards, but things changed as he approached his teenage years. Whether it was the influence of bad boys in the neighborhood or the simple dream of wearing his very own pair of fancy underwear, which he wouldn't have to share with anyone else, young Al went down a dark path. Sixth grade was the end of his formal schooling. He punched the teacher and walked out. This was very bad, don't do that. As you might imagine, that's when things got off track. He fell in with a tough crowd, and a tough crowd in this time and place meant a life of crime. 
It started small, with running petty errands for older gangsters. Then he moved on to some not-so-petty things, like robberies. There was a whole bunch of fighting, and this is how he wound up with the famous scar on his face. As his legend grew, the papers would refer to him as Scarface. Al didn't care for the name. Mobsters have feelings too, and it hurt his when people used it. You've got to admit though, it was an appropriately menacing nickname for someone who would be one of the most notorious criminals in history. In his 20s, Al left the East Coast and moved to Chicago. It was an opportune time for a guy like him to be a gangster, and the Windy City was a perfect place for a criminal life. Most of the politicians and cops were just as corrupt as the criminals. If Al didn't want to get in trouble for something, all he had to do was pay off the authorities and they'd look the other way. It was a pretty good arrangement for the people making money, but not for the general public. Citizens would have definitely preferred to have honest officials keeping them safe. For years and years, many different groups in America had tried to make alcohol illegal across the country. They pointed to the crime and sickness it created, the productivity it lost, and the families it tore apart. After decades of effort, the teetotalers, as some called them, eventually won, and Congress ratified a law known as Prohibition in 1919. When the 18th Amendment took effect in January of the next year, booze was illegal. This didn't bother Al one bit. In fact, it would make him a very rich man. If anything, gangsters like Al knew that the laws wouldn't stop people from wanting certain things. He made a career out of selling these things to people. If he'd carried an accurate business card, it would have listed his occupations as election meddling, alcohol, gambling, and more. Of course, he was too smart to put that in writing, one actual business card from his early years in Chicago said he sold used furniture and office supplies. But Al's furniture store was just a screen to hide all of the illegal stuff that he did. If anyone was really paying attention, they surely would have noticed that the same few pieces of furniture were always on display in the same spots of the dingy showroom floor. For a store to stay in business, you have to sell something every now and again. In truth, Al was selling something, it just wasn't chairs and desks. Really, he was part of an organized crime family which sold beer and liquor to speakeasies and other establishments. It was illegal, but you wouldn't have guessed it by walking around Chicago and its suburbs. People barely hid their alcohol, or anything else. If anyone started sniffing around and threatened to arrest or convict the booze-peddling offenders, the bribe of a fistful of dollars, or the threat of something more severe, usually took care of the problem before it went anywhere. At first, Al's problems didn't come from the law, they came from other gangsters. Al and his team of thugs weren't alone. There were plenty of other gangs selling booze, and like dogs at a fence line, everyone was protective of their turf. During peaceful times, everyone tried to get along and stick to the agreed-upon boundaries. During the not-so-peaceful times, bullets went flying in every which way. New on the scene was the Thompson submachine gun. The Tommy gun, as it was known, was originally intended for the European war fronts of World War I. But when the war ended, the manufacturer made it available for sale to any would-be criminals with enough cash. If there's one thing a mobster has, it's cash. Plenty of Al Capone's enemies met their end when the triggers were pulled. 
Whenever that happened, Al was nowhere to be found. Other people did his dirty work, which kept him out of the sight of witnesses. This is why he was always so hard to arrest. Never being at the scene made it next to impossible to connect him to the crime. Everyone knew he was in charge, but there was no way to prove anything. If a jury was ever going to send him to jail, the prosecutors would need proof that he committed a crime. Al was no dummy. He made sure evidence was hard to come by. Financial records were destroyed or hidden in special safes that were almost impossible to open. Most important, he didn't keep any of his growing fortune in a bank. He was practically the king of Chicago, but on paper, he didn't have much to his name beyond a floundering furniture business. Al knew money in the bank was proof that he actually had that money. And if someone went looking into how he got all of that money, it would start to be a big problem for him. So rather than create a paper trail, he spent it lavishly and made a show of his bombastic lifestyle. He hammed for the press so much that other mobsters got angry. Nearly any time there was a crime thought to be his, he'd head down to the police station himself saying, oh, I heard you were looking for me. Capone always got off. Sometimes it was because the city official was already on his payroll. Other times it was because there was none of that pesky evidence. Rival gangsters tried to take justice into their own hands. Once, his car was tailed by would-be assassins. Wildly inaccurate Tommy guns opened fire on the Capone vehicle, and when the smoke settled, they were surprised to learn that Al wasn't even inside. They were also surprised, and probably a little embarrassed, to learn that everyone who actually was inside survived the attack. Amazingly, the driver was not only safe, but he was unscathed. Whizzing bullets had pierced holes in his jacket and even his underwear, but his body was completely hull-free. These public shootings started happening too often to ignore. Plus, the booze business was obviously out of its control in its disregard for the prohibition law. Perhaps even worse, Capone was making the national papers almost every day. Embarrassed that criminals had gotten so powerful, the federal government realized it had to get involved. While some Chicago police and politicians could be bought or silenced, Al would find out that the feds were another matter altogether. He was branded public enemy number one. They knew he was a bad guy, but try as they might, they couldn't pin a crime on him. He was as slick as an oiled eel. Despite murders, booze, and hundreds of other crimes, Al Capone had covered his tracks so well that he still walked the streets, smiled for photos, and met with the press without an ounce of shame. Then it clicked with the feds. Tax evasion. No matter how anyone makes money, citizens are required to pay taxes on their income. Since he had hidden all of his millions of dollars of dirty money, Al Capone hadn't paid a dime of taxes on it. Maybe it wasn't juicy like his other crimes, but this was their best bet to get him behind bars. Their first challenge was proving that he actually had this money. Since he kept it out of the bank, it wasn't easy to trace. When they got a couple of his bookkeepers to flip on him, it opened some doors. Soon, they felt they could prove that he was earning well over $2 million a year, but knew he was actually making far more than that. Considering he hadn't paid taxes in a decade or more, they claimed that he had willingly withheld a fortune from the United States government. Convincing a jury, 
would be the second challenge. Not long before the trial was set to begin, the judge got a tip. One of Al's henchmen had passed out wads of cash to everyone in the jury pool like cupcakes at a birthday party. Playing his cards better than Capone, the judge surprised everyone by switching jury pools with another judge just before the opening statements. Al's mouth dropped to the floor. The party was over. The new jury settled in to hear how the government was going to prove Al Capone had lots of money when they couldn't prove it with bank statements. The answer was simple. Al Capone was well known for spending money like crazy. To see how lavish his spending truly was, they would prove he had a fortune hidden away, a fortune he had avoided paying taxes on. On the contrary, every member of that jury had paid taxes, and they did so while wearing old underwear and wrinkly suits. A string of Capone salesmen took the stand. From his suit dealer, the jury heard how Al bought dozens of fancy suits and even paid extra to modify the right pocket in each one to hold his pistol. It's not a crime to have nice suits, Al's lawyers refuted. The jury, dressed in the same brown jackets they had probably worn to church that weekend, blinked their eyes. Next, the prosecution brought in his jeweler. Al liked diamonds so much that this guy had recently sold him eight diamond belt buckles for $275 each. It's not a crime to have nice jewelry, Capone's lawyers argued. In 1931, one of these belt buckles was worth about the same amount of money the average American worker earned in a year. The jury nodded. Everything fell apart for Al Capone when a man named Mr. Oles came to the stand. Mr. Oles sold Al Capone underwear. Stifled laughter began filling the otherwise stodgy courtroom when he began describing Capone's favorites. Capone himself couldn't help joining. It was hard to embarrass the man, but newspaper reporters caught him blushing during the description. Mr. Oles testified that Al's favorite undies were an athletic-style underwear and made from glove silk. Most of the people in the room had never heard of glove silk, so the salesman enlightened the room. Glove silk is the same material used for the fanciest of ladies' gloves. The laughter grew, at least until he told the court the price. Al's undies cost $12 a pair, which, in America, during the Great Depression, was an entire week's wages for many. Capone was buying dozens of these fancy silk undershorts at a time. No one was laughing anymore, especially not the jury, sitting there in whatever uncomfortable, cheap undies they wore day in and day out. It wouldn't take much more to find him guilty. Lawyers had proven that he had illegally earned a fortune and then refused to pay taxes on it. Bootlegging and murdering didn't bring him down. His fancy underwear did. He was sent to prison in Atlanta, but Al was not quick to give up the lifestyle or his comfy undies. The newspapers reported that he was still calling the shots for his empire of crime from behind bars and wearing $12 silk undies while he did it. He was also showing off for his new prison friends. To prove he could get anything in prison he could get in the outside world, he once paid for an ice cream truck to come and treat all of his fellow prisoners. This was all very embarrassing to the government, so they decided to send him to Alcatraz, a maximum security prison on an island off the coast of San Francisco, California. There was no way he could pull the same nonsense there. It was true, he couldn't. 
but that didn't stop the press from spreading rumors of the same fancy underwear under the crime boss's clothes and same criminal commands coming from his jail cell. The warden shut down these rumors as fast as a getaway car on the Chicago freeway. Capone did not enjoy special treatment. Al wore the same itchy undies as everyone else. Actually, Capone was put on laundry duty, which meant he had to wash all the undies on the island. It was a long way down for the former king of Chicago. And so concludes The Underwear Chronicles. Thanks, folks. As I already mentioned, I hope you stumble onto a copy of I See Lincoln's Underpants. If you like it, tell someone, leave a review. And the same goes for the podcast. I have one big shout out this month, Phoebe. Thank you for the gift around New Year's. I appreciate it. And I am so glad that you are out there listening and you appreciate what I am creating. Uh, We'll have a new episode, a full episode um, coming up in just a couple weeks. And keeping with the theme, it's actually going to be underwear themed, but it's going to be two underwear stories that aren't in the book. So if you get the book and you like the book and you want some more underwear stuff, hey, I've got two more stories to share with you. And I can't wait to do that. And I've got a fun slate of stuff planned uh, in the year ahead. Sorry, I'm going to keep talking about the book. It's a big deal. Thank you all very much. Thank you for all your support. I am Mick Sullivan. I am humbled and I am pleased. And I'm happy that you are listening. And I hope you have a great week. <laughs>